Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. In part one, I thought it was important to briefly talk about the absence of capitalism in common analyses subscribed to by Christians, as well as the need to look deeper at the conditions in which these events have emerged. So, this episode is going to offer three ways in which I believe capitalism has contributed to the creation of the conditions in which white, working-class male mass shootings have emerged as normal weekly events in our liberal capitalist democracy. In the end, if you stick around, I'll also suggest some resources that Christian communities can use to further engage these mass shootings. But let's get started. The first contribution is inseparable from capitalism's primary goal, endless growth. Ceaseless, ever-expanding, compound growth is capitalism's ultimate objective. For money to be capital, as opposed to simply being money, the investment has to come back with greater value than the value of its original investment. And the faster, the better. That's why the commodity that workers advance, their labor power, and the commodity that employers advance, their money, are not equal in kind. The employee exchanges their commodity for a value less than they actually produce, whereas the employer receives more value in return than what they originally put in. Don't you just love that good old capitalist equality of exchange? All businesses under our neoliberal global market are forced to compete fiercely with one another, in the least to remain a competitor in the market, or at most to eliminate their competition by monopolizing the particular market, which would mean huge, rapid growth for that victorious capitalist enterprise. So, structurally, the primary goal of capitalism, ceaseless growth, is imposed upon every single business, whether they really want to endlessly expand or not. Because if they don't, they risk getting pushed out of business. And this coercive characteristic of the free market includes the industries that finance and manufacture the production of weapons. I'm sure it's no surprise to you that, e- that the manufacturing of weapons is today a very, very profitable industry. So even weapons manufacturers, and don't forget their financers, are compelled to continually expand both the production and consumption of their lethal commodities for the sake of perpetual profit maximization. So how then do manufacturers and investors ensure that consumption of their products is not only going to happen, but is going to increase and expand? One way to, as best as they can, ensure growth is through lobbying and buying politicians. All you do is say, hey, politician, we'll give you a hefty donation to your campaign if you promise to, when the time comes, sign this legislation, pass this law, and pursue the profitable opportunities that we know result in the manufacturing of our weapons. The politician, with good or mal intentions, it doesn't matter, accepts the deal in order to win their race, and then becomes a puppet to the interests of their big money donors. 
This is a great example of how the state, or the government, under capitalism, rather than being an enemy of the ruling elite, primarily becomes an instrument used by capitalists for their own interests, at the expense of the rest of us. Another way to increase the consumption of your product, whether it be yo-yos, houses, Apple watches, or weapons, is through good old-fashioned advertisement. We are constantly being aggressively advertised to by corporations. How free do we really think we are when the wealthiest and most powerful corporations now advertise their products to us in every space we occupy at all times of the day? Contrary to what capitalists have been telling us since its origins, we don't naturally desire the products we have come to increasingly consume. Instead, an expansion of a consumer market depends upon the creation and manipulation of our desires for more of whatever the product may be, new or old. Weapons manufacturers and groups like the NRA need consumers to view the purchasing of their products as a good. And so, hear this. They feed on the creation of identities that suggest that having these weapons in the hands of the police or in the hands of the military or in your own home is a necessity. These capitalist enterprises are not only selling automatic rifles and bulletproof vests to working class people to be used in working class spaces. They are selling an identity, a purpose, a worldview, a lens for understanding who you are and how you ought to relate to other people. There was a powerful profit motive and market imperative that contributed to the creation of the identity internalized by Patrick Crugius that led him to kill 22 human beings and injure 25 more in El Paso, Texas. There was an economic compulsion behind the ideology internalized by Connor Betts that led him to slaughter his neighbors and his sister. And as long as the ruling capitalist elite have their way, capitalism's primary goal of ceaseless compound growth will continue to put profit-making over the livelihood of the rest of us. If we want to get to the deeper roots of the weekly massacres overwhelmingly performed by white working-class males in the U.S., we have to address the coercive laws of ruthless market competition and the capitalist commitment to infinite compound growth that enables both the production of these weapons and the production of these identities so closely tied to our weekly mass shootings. A second way in which capitalism, it could be said, has contributed to the production of the conditions in which these largely white, working-class male mass shootings have emerged starts with the transformation of what we'll refer to as, in the spirit of Du Bois, the Fordist material and psychological wages of white masculinity that came about after the Great Depression under FDR's New Deal reforms. Let me say that again. The, the Fordist material and psychological wages of white masculinity. So, the Fordist era in the U.S. spans from the 1930s to the 1970s. 
Keynesian state-managed capitalism, displaced neoclassical private capitalism throughout these four decades. And in the aftermath of the Great Depression of 1929, FDR's New Deal reforms worked to give white working-class males a guarantee of sufficient wages, government-subsidized private housing, government-funded education, employee benefits, retirement plans, financial assistance for the unemployed, and an overall better standard of living. However, because these much-needed benefits, right, in such a crisis, were given to only a portion of the working class and not the entire working class as a whole, the defining characteristic of capitalist societies that is strategically used for the purposes of controlling the masses, the policies helped bring about white supremacy and male supremacy into a new and particular manifestation, a manifestation that built upon past racial and gender inequality and domination. If white women wanted to access a better standard of living in this period, they would need to marry a white man. This structurally propped up a one-sided economic and social dependence between men and women racialized as white. It was an economically induced support for gender inequality and sexual domination. Urban neighborhoods and entire rural towns were also designated as either white-only or non-white neighborhoods, which gave white families a leg up in important markets, such as the labor market, the housing market, and the education system. So racial inequality and racial domination also had a profoundly economic character to them. But these white patriarchs were still working class. And so while workers of all gendered and racialized groups were under the control and command of the board of directors and major shareholders at work for 40 hours a week, it was yet the white man alone that could, in the evening, return to his home and play boss privately over his family, who, for the most part, could be sure to see their economic condition improve over time. Again, and I think this is important, he was subordinated for eight hours a day, five days a week, just like the majority of white women and all persons of color. But in his house the white working-class male was given the role of the subordinator, the decision-maker, the ruler of a kingdom, just like his boss and the major shareholders got to be at his place of employment. But something else was given to the white working-class male alongside all this special treatment. White men were fed the myth of liberal individualism and capitalist meritocracy. Instead of having a leg up due to special treatment in the form of government-subsidized social programs and welfare, white men internalized the belief that they had become materially superior to their wives and to people racialized as non-white because they earned it. Because of their individual attributes, their character, their work ethic, there wasn't a social order designed to give them a bit more than their fellow members of the exploited working class. They had their better jobs and wages, their retirement plans, their government-subsidized private housing, their better-funded neighborhood schools for their kids, because they worked for it. Capitalist meritocracy told them to look around and ask, why were they in this materially privileged position to female and non-white workers? 
Why were women performing the housework when they got home from their factory jobs or their service sector work? Why were workers of color disproportionately working the less favorable work for worse wages and living in such terrible living conditions? It must be because everyone gets what they deserve. In the land of equality and under the American liberal capitalist democracy, isn't that what our great nation promises us? The opportunity to compete among equals and the assurance you'll get what you deserve? The Fordist material and psychological wages of white working class masculinity had been solidified. Capitalists wouldn't have to worry about the majority of white men realizing they actually had more in common with women and with people of color than they did their bosses. However, the Fordist era, like all eras, would not last forever. All right, so this will be the third contribution I think capitalism has made to the conditions in which these mass shootings have emerged. And um, I'll say this, it's historically connected to the second, right? They can't be disconnected. Moving forward from the material and psychological wages of white masculinity in the Fordist era, we see the neoliberal reverse. And this leads up to our present moment. Starting in the mid-1970s, a different kind of capitalism would start to emerge. White male workers who enjoyed the psychological and material privileges of the Fordist era would no longer be promised such material security under capitalism moving forward. While profits continued to soar into the 21st century, the real wages of middle-income earners have increased basically a whopping 0% over the last 50 years, while low-income earners watched their real wage decrease, meaning low-income earners in the 70s could buy more with their money than low-income earners can in 2019. Along with a stagnation of wages amidst soaring profits accumulated by the top 1%, the working class has increasingly seen rapid unemployment and job insecurity. Two-thirds of job loss has resulted from technological innovation, innovation that was pursued by the major shareholders and board of directors of our places of work, even though their decisions have been at the expense of employees, their families, and their communities, namely the working class. With stagnant wages and rising employment insecurity, alongside some very important advances won by gender and sexual liberation movements, the labor market was flooded with women looking for work more regularly and for longer hours. Outsourcing and globalization also enabled capitalist employers to lay off their more costly white male worker in the U.S. for cheaper, mostly female workers of color in the global south and throughout East Asia. On top of all this, workers from countries who had newly been taken by capitalist dispossession and displacement were now forced to migrate to where they could find employment, places like the U.S., so you have decent jobs leaving and a surge of surplus labor happening for lots of different reasons. But this all contributed to capitalist employers being able to suppress, if not repress, the wages of working peoples. With the rising costs of things like housing, transportation, education, and healthcare, and with the longing to maintain the lifestyles sold to them in the mid-20th century, Working peoples were encouraged to replace 
what could have been rising wages with rising debt. Who needs a bigger paycheck when you can slowly pay off a house, a vehicle, and an education later? And so, the average white male worker has had his labor power increasingly exploited at work. He has seen his working conditions worsen, the hours of his working day lengthen, and his stagnant wages remain unchanged. He can no longer even pretend to be the sole male breadwinner for his family, even though that was never really the case for the majority of white working-class families. His indebtedness has astronomically increased. Women have less of a structurally induced economic incentive to marry and unilaterally depend upon men. And the assumption that his white skin is supposed to protect him from economic suffering, pain, and demoralizing labor has again and again, especially since the 0708 recession, proven to be one big fat lie. Whereas the fordist wages of white masculinity promised a better life than the life their parents had known for a larger number of white men, the neoliberal reverse has proven that neither their whiteness, nor their gender identity, nor their genitals can protect them from capitalism's commitment to endless compound growth. Whereas capitalism was able to reproduce itself by giving white male workers material and psychological wages above their fellow working class members who were gendered and racialized as other, and convincing them that their material superiority resulted from their own individual merit, all while disguising their own exploitation and subordination at work, the new rules under neoliberal capitalism, as well as the important advancements achieved by the women's and sexual liberation movements, undermined the white working-class male identity that capitalism under Fordism worked so hard to shore up. Is it that hard for us to see how the white working-class man with his increasingly vulnerable economic privileges and his socially constructed identity constituted by gender and racial inequality, as well as his internalization of the myth of capitalist meritocracy, might find the performance of these brutal mass shootings as an avenue in which he can express his confusion, his alienation, and his misplaced anger? Capitalism, among other things, helped materially and psychologically transform what it meant to be a white working man under Fordism. And capitalism, among other things, has helped erode what little white men thought they had built by themselves. Working class white men are looking for answers. And white nationalism and heteropatriarchy and fascism all want to be their answer. They all want to be their explanation as to why they are feeling so alienated, exploited, disposable, and oppressed. If Christians want to address the deeper conditions in which these mass shootings have emerged, we might want to consider how capitalism and whiteness and heteropatriarchy are not the friends of white working-class males, but are their enemies. I hope this was a helpful or meaningful episode for you. Um, to wrap this up, I just want to recommend three little resources I think that could uh, be helpful to our further conversation in our uh, Christian communities. So one is the work of Patrick Blanchfield. Um, check him out. Uh, he does some excellent analysis 
linear sections of race, gender, and class, um, and capitalism when it comes to the emergence of these primarily white working class male mass shootings. Um, another I would recommend is the work of uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud. She has a podcast called Capitalism Hits Home, and that's a part of the Democracy at Work network. Um, she, she has a few good episodes on the revolution of uh, the uh, inside the house that has kind of contributed to the transformation of um, white male identity. And then finally, um, a book by Kelly Brown Douglas. I've put it on the Instagram uh, little section where I recommend some accessible books. And that book is called Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. And she talks about the assassination or the, the murder of Trayvon Martin. And although that's that's not a, technically a mass shooting, um, Blanchfield actually helps connect how, and I think uh, Douglas does as well, how the murders of individual unharmed black men um, also are related to these mass shootings. And I think it's a really important, helpful analysis. So I hope you enjoyed the show and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening, and a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.